end to share with you uh, across the other end of the video stream as well. We're going to have a look at God's Word. Um, it's a huge passage and there's so much packed into here. So we're going to have a bit of a lightning fast uh, run through this passage uh, and we will see what God might have for us this morning. Let's just pray as we come to hear from this passage. Heavenly Father, you are good and you have shared with us a good message uh, through these words that we have heard read. We thank you, Lord, for your, for your word, which we have in our own language, that we can hear and respond. And we pray, Lord, that that would be the case this morning, that we would hear and respond. And we would be able to hear what you have to say to us through your spirit. And I pray, Lord, for myself, that the words that I speak would be pleasing in your sight. And the meditation of our hearts um, would also be pleasing to you, you who are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Put yourselves in the shoes of the Israelite there in Saul's army. There's only a couple hundred of you. Put yourself in his their shoes. All you've got is a pick or a shovel or something like that for a weapon. There's 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 only two swords, and they are with the uh, king and his son. You're there in the standing army. You're facing off against the garrison of the Philistines. You're outnumbered. You're outgunned. You're unskilled in the art of war. And then the order comes down from the king. Everybody assemble for the day's orders. And as you form up in your ranks and your squads, the king comes out and he says, Cursed be the man who eats food until evening and I'm avenged on my enemies. That's a bit rough. You're about to face a day of battle and the king says, no food for you. Nonetheless, while you're there receiving the instructions from the, from the king, there's a bit of a hubbub is, is going on down in the Philistine garrison. And we, we saw that last week that Jonathan had snuck off with his armor bearer and was stirring up trouble down in the garrison. And so after, after a bit of a, a double take trying to figure out what's going on, the king says, all right, let's go down to battle. And so they, they head down, and by God's grace, the battle is going in your favor. It's pretty hard going. You're an obedient Israelite. You're following the commands of your king, and God is on your side, and you're taking out the Philistines. But it's, it's pretty tough going. But the, the battle keeps going on. Over several hours, and it moves, it moves down to another city. And you have victory. But it's not over yet. The Philistines have, have started to run every direction. They're all running away. They're fleeing. And so it gives you, gives the army a chance to catch your breath. And man, you've been fighting for a while. <laughs> you haven't had breakfast. I'm getting a bit hungry. Might be a good time to stop and have some lunch. But the king's curse is ringing in your ears. Cursed be the man who eats before the evening and I'm avenged on my enemies. So Saul commands his army, no time to stop, no time to sit down. Get out there and strike down the enemy. Search the countryside and take out the vermin. And so beginning to fade from exertion on an empty stomach with brain fog setting in, 
you grin and bear it and head off in search of the fleeing Philistines. Your legs drag and your arms feel heavy, but you move on from place to place, knocking over the enemy wherever you can find him. And somebody says, we should go and check the forest and see if there are any Philistines hiding there. And so the army converges on the forest and you walk into the shade of the trees, there's a slight reprieve, and there you see it. See it on the ground. In the clefts on the ground or in the rock or in the trees, the bees have made their, their, their hive and the, and the comb is full. And it's dripping down, this beautiful golden honey there waiting for the taking. But the curse is ringing in your ears. Cursed be the man who eats before evening and I'm avenged on my enemies. But Jonathan wasn't there when the curse was pronounced, when they, when Saul laid the oath on the people. And so Jonathan sees this beautiful gift from God and he walks over and he takes and he eats and it brings refreshment to him. His eyes are brightened. He's, the, he gets that sugar hit from this fresh honey that God has provided. Here we have a king who failed to sustain his men, failed to feed his men. He failed to obey God, as we also see in the passenger passage. We also see that he, he fails to stand against evil. This, this episode in Saul's story is really a parable of Saul's whole kingship. He's set up for victory, but he keeps shooting himself in the foot. He can't win because he goes into battle wounded from the start. He has potential, but he's too fickle. He, he has the drive to be a good God-fearing leader, but just when things seem to be headed the right direction, he has a habit of turning around and going the wrong way. We have here Saul demonstrating to us how to fail in spiritual warfare, how to mess it up big time. Now, now you might think it's funny to say this is spiritual warfare. This is actual warfare. There's men with swords going and taking on you know, the enemy forces that are invading your country. That's real warfare. Yes, but in Israel, this is also spiritual warfare. This is God against God's enemies. This is where we see whether God and his people will triumph over the people around them who are attacking them. Triumph over the gods and false religious practices around them. Remember, when the Bible was written, yes, it is a record of historical events, but through these historical events, we're trying to be, they're trying to tell us a theological message, a spiritual message. And we see that abundantly in these pages of 1 Samuel. We see here a king who is failing at spiritual warfare. For the people of Israel, God would use them as a tool of his divine judgment to wipe out sin and evil. There were tribes in Canaan that worshipped demonic forces and had abominable evil practices and God opposed that evil. And so he would drive them out. He would wipe them out. He wanted a purified, sanctified land where they could live with God, freed from the influence of sin, freed from these false gods that were encroaching on God's people. 
At least that's what the idea was. But in practice, the Israelites had a bad track record of destroying what was evil and serving God. They would do a half a job. They were happy with small wins. You might remember when they came up into the land and when they'd taken uh, over one part of the Transjordan, the Israelite tribes, some of them said, oh, this is enough, we'll just stay here. This is good enough for us, thanks. When you read through Joshua, you see a whole bunch of successes where they're breaking forward, they're making progress, and then Joshua dies and it kind of comes to a grinding halt. And we see in Judges their continued failure to live for God and to drive out evil. And so we end up in where we are today in this passage with the people who've cried out for a king to lead them because of how much trouble they have had. But we see that Saul is like the Israelites that have gone before, half-hearted in their, in their spiritual warfare. Saul teaches us four, pas- four, four principles of spiritual worship. Four principles of spiritual warfare in this passage today. Four principles of spiritual warfare. And he fails on each count. But as I'm sure you can guess, we have a king who leads us into spiritual warfare who succeeds on each of these principles. So the first principle of spiritual warfare is that we need food for battle. Back in our story, we see that Saul deprived his army of food because he thought it would help him win. Maybe he was superstitious and he thought, well, if we fast enough, then God will be pleased with us. Or maybe he's just trying to motivate the army. You know, you can't eat until you win. Get out there and do it. But instead of benefiting his army, he actually undermined his army. He had a faint and famished army who couldn't finish the job. And his son Jonathan, none the wiser about the curse, received God's good gift of food, reaching out to take of the honey. One of the blokes came up to him and said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now defeat among the Philistines has not been great. The honey made Jonathan's eyes bright. He was refreshed. He was restored from his work. He relished in this good gift from God that his father would have him give up. So we have Jonathan refreshed by food and an army that is, that is falling over for hunger. An anticlimactic win. They can't finish the job. They don't have the strength to go the distance because they have a king who pulled it out from underneath them. Spiritual war requires sustenance. And when it's slaying Philistines, it means food for the belly. But when it comes to our battles against evil, it means that we need spiritual sustenance. What will sustain us? We have Philistines warring against us. We have evil squatters living in our sacred space. We are people who are set aside to serve God in Jesus Christ, yet we have in our hearts idols that we serve. We have sins that have set up garrisons in our souls 
making strongholds on our heart. We have enemy raiders plundering our joy in the Lord while we doubt and while we let fear reign over us. We are a people, a spiritual army who belong to our King Jesus and we need food for our souls. We need sustenance. We need something to revive us and brighten our eyes. And the Psalms tell us what we need in Psalm 119. The psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. God's word comes to us as the reviver of our souls, that sweet thing which will open our eyes to see our enemy as the wretched thing that it is. Without God's word, you and I would be blind to the sin and the destruction in our lives, the corruption that has been wrought, that which takes up residence so easily in our hearts when we're not watching. But even more than the written words on a page, we need God's word embodied, God's word incarnate. We need Jesus himself who will sustain us who will feed us. He is the bread of life, the living water. He provides his own body and blood for us as spiritual food, which we will soon partake of in the symbolic way. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So that's our first principle of spiritual warfare. We need food to sustain us. But the second principle is we need to be free from silly burdens. And we come back to our story, we see that the victory that day was was not because of Saul's obedience, it was anticlimactic because his, his men didn't have the strength to finish the battle. But God did give them strength, uh, did give them victory through Jonathan's faith. Now, as night fell, they had a modest victory over the Philistines. The oath had passed. It was now evening and they had won. They had collected a bunch of great loot, including some nice, fat, juicy oxen that were looking pretty good right now after a day of battle. They were getting pretty hungry. They'd been fighting across the countryside and they were so hungry that they didn't prepare the food properly. They started eating with the blood in the meat. They just slaughtered the animals on the ground and they started eating. Now, if you know your Torah well, you might remember that eating meat with the blood in is a big no-no. God's law for Israel said you should never eat with the blood. The blood is reserved for making atonement. And if you're not making atonement, you pour it out on the ground. So when Saul hears what's going on, he, he, he acts right away. He knew this was against the law. And so he set up a big rock so that the men could slaughter the animals and drain the blood out. At first you might think, oh, that's, a, that's good on Saul for his law keeping, that he's, he's helping them keep the law. But if we look back, we will realize that it's actually because of what he'd done beforehand that they were now in this position where it made it easy for the men to not keep the law. If it wasn't for his stupid oath, they wouldn't have been in such a bad position to begin with. 
It's because they hadn't eaten that they were so hungry and predisposed with, to sinning against God. Now, each man is responsible for his own sin. Don't, don't hear me saying that's not the case. None of them should have done what they did. But the point is that, that Saul's silly burden that he'd put them in, he'd put them in a position where breaking of the, the law of God seemed like a good idea. And, and having eaten now, set things right, Saul was ready to make a night raid, surprise attack on the Philistines. But the priest suggested, hang on, let's, let's take a moment and let's consult God. And so the priest starts to do his thing and no answer. Nothing. So God's, so Saul starts thinking, God is obviously upset with us for some reason. Let's find the culprit. Now, now God never says that sin is the problem here, but Saul is convinced that there is sin that is a problem. So through the priest, they have a process of elimination where they, they cast the, the urim and the thummim to try and figure out where the source of the, of the issue is. And before long, it turns out that it was Jonathan. And Jonathan has to own up to having eaten some of the honey. Now, oaths and vows are fine. If you read through Paul's letters you will, and, and Acts, you'll see that Paul's doing oaths and vows all over the place. But we are cautioned time and time again in Scripture of making rash oaths and vows. And you can look at Jephthah, the judge, and see the stupid vow that he made. Saul did the same and he created a rod for his own back with this stupid rule and now he was in a position where he might have to kill his own son. Here we have a foolish king who is going to put his own son to death, not because it will save people, not because it's a loving thing to do, but because he made a silly burden for his people. And it got me thinking, I wonder what silly burdens we are living under that are not good for our spiritual health. We have a tendency as Christians to make life hard for ourselves, to take on extra traditions or expectations that are not prescribed by God. Half the New Testament, at times it feels like it, it seems that Paul is trying to remind the churches, you don't need anything else other than Jesus. But sometimes we can't help ourselves. We, we, we go and make silly rules and burdens to put on our backs. And I was thinking, what might be an example? Well, maybe you might be overcommitting your life to a hundred things, some of which may be very good. But maybe you are overcommitting yourself to doing all these things and so you are actually making it hard for yourself to serve God, to love your neighbor. How can you love your neighbor if you're constantly running from this to that and the other thing? Or when you're constantly burdened with responsibilities that you have because of the many things that we're involved in. I know I have a tendency to say yes, yes, yes. But it could actually be coming a burden for us when we are loaded up with duties and responsibilities that don't help us serve God. Or on the flip side, I was thinking, how could you make it hard for others to serve God? What silly burdens are you placing on others? Especially if you're a leader, you have a great responsibility to enable people to serve God, not to make it harder for them. Are you figuratively 
enabling people, sorry, are you, are you figuratively speaking, starving them of spiritual food? And a particular charge to you fathers, are you holding back spiritual food from your family? Are you expecting your kids to grow up spiritually healthy all the while holding back spiritual food from them? Are you willing to send emaciated soldiers onto the battlefield and and just presume arrogantly on God's kindness to make up for your lack, for your laziness? Friends, we see that Saul was a horrible leader on this front, so much so that he ended up needing a ransom from the army to stop him from slaughtering his own son. That's poor spiritual warfare, burdening his army in that way. How can you be free to fight the battle in front when weighed down by the foolishness of a faulty leader? Their victory wasn't great that day. But, but friends, we get to rejoice because Saul's not our king. Jesus is our king. For all those who have sworn fealty to Jesus, who have given their allegiance to him, he lifts the burdens and gives them easy work. He's done the heavy lifting. He's won the big battles. He's overcome the obstacles. We don't have a a foolish, burdensome leader. Jesus makes it easy for us to serve God, to go into battle with him. He opens the way to God and frees us to serve him well. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Jesus, we are freed from the clutches of Satan and we spit in the face of death. In in Jesus, I'm free to give up my life for the cause of Christ, to charge headlong after the enemy as he cowers at the mention of Jesus' name. I don't need to try and hold it all together. I don't need to try and put on a brave face to worry about the future. I don't need to try and earn my place in heaven. I don't need to try and make my life meaningful. I don't need to be extraordinary. I'm free to run into enemy territory and proclaim Jesus is king. He's king over this place too. And if you don't like it, you can go to hell. Christ's message is going forth. It is breaking forth in the darkness. Jesus is overcoming his enemies. And all those who stand against him will be destroyed. And now we come to our third spiritual principle for warfare. Our third principle of spiritual warfare. And it's back in our story where Saul is given a mission by God to go and to wipe out the Amalekites. He was told by Samuel to uh, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Get rid of the whole lot. Now, the Amalekites had opposed God and his people when they came out of Egypt. They were a nomadic ethnic group who who would travel around. And in Saul's day, they were down the south of Israel and they would make raids up into Israel. And God's patience had come to an end. They were a prideful, evil people. And God's patience was finished. Time's up. They've got to go. 
And God doesn't do this lightly, as with the other nations before them who were in the promised land of Canaan. The Amalekites had plenty of time to turn away from their wickedness, but they instead chose to stand against God. And it had got to the point where they were, had run out of time. So God, as their creator and their sustainer, chose the end point for their existence. A way of thinking about it might be to think about a hunter who wants to take his dog hunting. And it's a very aggressive dog, and he has to train that dog to put his aggression into the hunt. But if the dog keeps turning on him and attacking his leader, his, his master, eventually he's going to get to the point where he says enough is enough and he will choose the end point for his dog. Now, you might think it's a bit rough to compare people to dogs, but when you think about the immensity and magnitude and the glory of God and our place in response to him, we're, we're less than dogs in comparison to God. We're like grass in the field. Blades of grass that are here today and gone tomorrow. God is our sustainer, he is our creator, and he has the right, when he sees fit, to bring us to an end. And so Saul was commissioned with this, this, this spiritual um, warfare commission to wipe out evil and wickedness, to wipe it off the mat, leave nothing behind. It, it seems strange to us now, but we find it hard to put, hard to put our spiritual warfare glasses on. They were to purge the land of the evil, cancerous growth. And so Saul assembles his army and he goes out to war. He kindly gives the Kenites a heads up. It's time to disassociate yourself from the Amalekites because we're coming in. And then Saul goes in, guns blazing, and he he goes in and he takes out the Amalekites. It's sounding like it's going really great. But then we hear, well, he didn't do the whole job. He kept the best of the livestock the king of the Amalekites is still alive. And then we hear he has the goal to go and set up a monument to himself on the way back home. Saul comes down, sorry, Samuel comes down to Saul with the bad news from God. You stuffed up. You stuffed up big time. So much so that, this, that God has said, I have repented from making you king. He's going to give the kingdom to somebody else. And Saul tried to cover up his failure. He said, oh, look, I did what you told me to. Saul said, no, you didn't. And then the truth comes out. Oh, I did it because I was afraid of what the men would think. I did it because I was afraid of my own honor. And he says, look, I'm going to sacrifice it to God. Look, look at my good intentions God's not interested in good intentions. He's more interested in people who listen and obey. Saul is understandably upset when he finds out that the kingdom is not going to be his anymore. And he tries to set things right with repentance. If you look through the passage, you'll see how there's a whole bunch of language of turning around, turning back. I want to, I want to repent before the Lord. Help me, return with me. But it's too late. 
the damage has been done. God has made up his mind. Now, you might, as you read through this passage, get a little bit confused because it talks about God. Some of your translations will say that he, um, he regretted making Saul king or some translations will say that he repented. And we, this sounds a bit odd to our ears to hear about God repenting. And to make it all more confusing, in between two verses that say God repented from making Saul king or regretted making Saul king, Samuel says in the middle... God is not like a man that he should lie or have regret. Yeah, hang on a sec. This, this seems to be at odds with one another. But the idea here is that, is that God has, has turned away from what he was doing with Saul. He has, he has emotion. He grieves over sin and over rebellion. He feels that. Even though he knows what's going to happen. And it gets to this point where he says, okay, that's the end of that, and we're going to go a different direction with Saul. It's not as though God didn't see it coming. It's not as though God was caught off guard when this happened, or he's like, let's see if this works out. Oh, it's not going to work out. We'll try something else. He knew that was going to happen, but this is the change of direction. God is no longer running with Saul as king. Augustine, Augustine, however you like to say it, he says it well. God doesn't suffer the pain of repentance, nor is he deceived about anything so that he should wish to correct an error that he has made. But when a person repents of anything, he wants to change what he's done. So when you hear that God repents, we look for an actual change. God is grieved by sin. But he's not changing in himself. He's changing the direction of history. And we see that Saul's not repenting truly in his heart. He's upset that he got found out and punished for it. He's not grieved that he's grieved God. He's grieved that he's lost face. Listening and obedience is part of our spiritual warfare. It's a key part. It's how we walk in the light of the gospel and steer clear of the enemy that we've been saved from. It's how we face our enemy with Jesus, leading our charge to wrestle against the spiritual enemies. Obedience is the evidence to the world that we truly belong to Jesus. Obedience comes with faith in Jesus. Now, obedience doesn't win us a place in heaven. It doesn't, it doesn't win us God's favor, but it it comes with faith. It can't be separated. In fact, John, um, in John 3, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Believing and obedience go hand in hand. It, it, it makes sense, right, though? It, it, if you have a king who's giving you orders and you keep disobeying those orders, why would he want you on his side? Why would he consider you part of his kingdom if you're going to continually disobey his orders? If you don't listen to the marching orders and follow through on mission objectives, why should you be considered part of that army? Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, by the grace of God, we have a king who listens and obeys, unlike Saul, who is obedient even unto the point of death. He heard from his father and he did all that his father commanded him. 
And being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he died for his people, to save his people. Unlike Saul, who only obeyed when it was convenient for himself, Jesus died in love. He obeyed in love. He laid down his life to save people from their enemies, from their spiritual enemies. And in Colossians, we're told he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So through Jesus' obedience, through his death, there is victory. He heard and obeyed all that was put before him, that we might triumph over our spiritual enemies. Through his obedient death, he secured victory. And by you joining yourself to faith in Jesus, you can share in that victory. But then we come to the fourth principle for spiritual warfare, to stand against evil. It's the last part of our story where Samuel the prophet, the old prophet, has to come in and finish the job that Saul couldn't finish. Saul, Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came cheerfully. The battle's over. The time for, the time for slaughter has ended, right? You know. Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. He has to do the dirty work because God will not abide wickedness. What a sorry end to what could have been such an amazing story where Saul could have been getting a commendation from God but now he's getting a rejection because of his half-hearted stand against evil. God takes our stand against evil very seriously. He is holy. He will destroy evil. He will hack evil to pieces. And anything that stands in the way of a sanctified people living in a sanctified land will be decimated. And Jesus talks about our own fight against sin in similar terms. He doesn't suggest messing around with sin, going halfway. He tells us to hack off anything that gets in the way of holiness. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to at the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Friends, we've got to take our holiness seriously. And if you're anything like me, you're probably a bit passive in your view of wickedness in our own life. After all, we tend to be like Saul. When, 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 when our sin is revealed, we want to make excuses for our actions. We want to justify our failures. But God's not content to leave us partially glorified, partially purified, partially holy. He wants complete holiness. He wants to purge the sin from us. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, stand against sin in your life. Hack it off. 
You, you may be tempted to feel sorry for the Amalekites or to think that Samuel was a bit harsh with Agag. We need to be careful about thinking that way because he received justice. What God did in this scenario was good. When we, get, we need to get our heads wrapped around these Old Testament purges because we're expecting a greater, it depends on how you look at it, a worse purge, a bigger purge when Jesus comes back. He won't just be purging individual groups of tribes that stand against him, but he will be purging all evil from the whole earth. He will be wiping it out. God stands against evil. Jesus spoke to one of the New Testament churches in Revelation to warn them to stand against evil and to encourage them. He says through the Apostle John to one of the churches which, is, which is, uh, was messing around with false teaching and with, with, with evil practices, he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. God will feed those who conquer and he will come and war against evil and he calls us to repent. Our spiritual warfare must stand against evil. And so that's those four principles. We need food for battle. We need sustenance for battle. And Christ gives that to us. We need to get rid of the silly burdens that we have put on ourselves or we might be putting on others. And Christ frees us from those burdens. We need to listen and obey just like Christ listened and obeyed God perfectly. And we need to stand against evil. No half-hearted tactics. No, No little bit of standing against evil, but sometimes not. We've got to go all the way. And I thought there was no way, better way to finish this encouragement to go to spiritual warfare than with the passage from Paul in Ephesians. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have defeated our enemies. You have defeated death. You have defeated sin. You have defeated Satan. And we thank you, Lord, that now, having won the war, we go out into the world. We go out chasing after the darkness wherever it flees. And Lord, we go out with the light of the gospel to bring the light of the gospel to the nations. We thank you, Lord, that you sustain us. We thank you, Lord, that you give us your word so that we can hear and obey. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to enable us to go out into the world. We thank you, Lord, that you stand against evil and that you are enabling us to stand against evil. We pray, Lord, that we would take your holiness seriously this week and every week to see holiness in our own lives, but also to see the gospel go out and holiness to go out with it across this earth. Lord, we long for the day when you have finally and fully completed your, your remaking of the world. We thank you, Lord, that you are coming to wipe away all evil and you are coming to wipe away all pain. You're coming to bring your people to yourself in final victory. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.